0: Good morning, Four Oaks Church. Pastor Paul here. So glad you're with us. And let me just say right off the top, if that scripture passage does not sound like anything you've ever read in the book of Genesis, don't worry, you're not hallucinating. Well, you may be hallucinating, but not about that, right? Uh, As I mentioned in the communique that we sent out this past week, we are pivoting from Genesis to 1 Peter for this next season. You know, we've been in Genesis for over a year now, And we're going to be returning, Lord willing, at the end of the summer and be going through the end of Genesis through the fall. But uh, the lead pastors for the three different congregations all came together and decided that this would be a good pivot for us to make together. And let me just explain for just a couple of minutes why. When you think about what the hardest part of the last two months have been for you in this season... Most of us would not have any problems whatsoever coming up with whatever that thing is for us, right? Maybe it's that you can't go out to eat, or your travel plans were canceled, or there's no more sports anywhere on TV, or maybe you can't go to your favorite amusement park. Maybe it's something much more serious that's made an indelible impression upon you this season, your financial situation, not being able to be there for a loved one who is sick or in hospice care. Uh, Maybe you've really missed gathering as a church family. You know, whatever that way that you answer that question, we do know that times of crisis reveal what's already in our hearts. Times of crisis reveal where it is that you and I have been placing our hope. And Peter is writing to a people 2,000 years ago in Asia Minor who were in fact struggling to find hope. They were struggling to live in a broken world that was breaking their hearts. And so for the next 12 to 14 weeks, we're going to be in a series called A Sojourner's Guide to Hope. And we're going to be looking at those first, three, first nine verses this morning and three things we want to specifically highlight. And here they are. Number one, We want to talk about Peter and his people, number two, God and his plan, and thirdly, faith and its fruit. And as we get ready to march forward into this, I think what's going to prove to be an amazing, timely book for us, four oaks, let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that while everything around us is out of kilter and out of step, that you are not out of kilter, you are not out of step. In fact, you are marching forward. You are the sovereign king of the universe, reigning with your rule and authority and your goodness to us. And so, Father, thank you for not leaving us without a word. Thank you for not being a king who departs to a distant country but doesn't leave us without bread. Lord, you've given us your bread, it's the word of life, and we ask that you would use it uniquely this morning and this season to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's look first at Peter and his people. Now, I don't know about you, but here's my pastoral confession this morning, Four Oaks. I am absolutely OD'd on all COVID-19 news. The cacophony of voices, is it not? It can just be absolutely overwhelming Burks and Fauci and sound like clothing lines, politicians, medical models, news outlet, YouTubers, you know, the big, everybody has a take, right? And I, for me, the biggest challenge this season is who do you believe? Who do you trust? It seems like what we desperately need is an authoritative, infallible, all-seeing, all-knowing medical voice, right, to tell us what to do. But we know in our hearts that doesn't exist. But you know what? A spiritual one does. And that's what you and I this season need the most. This is why Peter begins his letter. Look at verse 1 right out the top. He's reminding everyone that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the reason Peter is doing this is not because he's on an ego trip not because he wants to name drop, not not because he wants to say, hey, listen, this Jesus person that you've heard so much about, I really hung out with him for three years. We were besties. You know, that's not why Peter is mentioning this. He's mentioning the fact that he's an apostle because he wants them to know that what they are about to read is 100% true. It is trustworthy. It is something they can go to the bank with. In this cacophony of cultural voices that those churches were experiencing, just like ours, they needed some place to plant their flag. So he is writing as an apostle, and we know that the apostles are the representatives of Jesus Christ. They have been commissioned, sent out by him with the apostolic deposit. They are given the authority to govern the church, to, to rule the church, to interpret the Old Testament, to put pen to paper, and to record the letters that we have now as the New Testament. They were to be recorded and passed down. And what essentially Peter is saying is saying, folks, listen, what you have here, what you're about to read is the very Word of God. And folks, let me just quickly say, in the shifting sands of cultural uncertainty you and I, both of us, we too need a place to plant our flag. If there was ever, ever a time to be a people of the book, now is it. Because nominal, lukewarm Christianity in this season won't cut it. Having a mediated, Osmotic relationship with God and His church and the Word, guys, that's not going to bear the weight of seasons like this. See, seasons like this reveal the fault lines of our lives, they reveal where we have placed our trust. And Peter wants to remind them there's only one place that we can, as we sang this morning, that we can settle our feet the firm ground of Jesus Christ and His Word. And Peter is writing to these Christians who are living in five cities or provinces of or areas of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. Now, these are most likely churches that Peter helped to plant and to pour his life into maybe 20, 30 years prior to this. But now Peter is at the end of his life. He is in Rome, and he wants to point them towards their only foundation of hope. So he begins by reminding them of who they are, and he's reminding us of who we are. He, he calls them something interesting. Look at verse 1. He calls them the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now that word dispersion, it re- literally means diaspora, diaspora. It's a term that ancient antiquity and oftentimes in the scriptures that the writers use to refer to the Israelites, the ethnic Israelites who had been scattered across the world after the exile. So after the northern kingdom was taken into captivity in Assyria and the southern kingdom in captivity to Babylon, Israelites were removed from their homelands and they were scattered all across the known world. What Peter is doing here, he's taking this word and he is appropriating it instead to all Christians, both Jew and Gentile not because they are geographical exiles. No, they were, they were at home geographically. But spiritually, they were not at home. And Peter wants to remind them of that. He wants to remind us of that. So he uses the word exiles, parapodemos, sojourners, strangers, wanderers. This is Peter's way of reminding them and of reminding us that we are not people of this world. We are temporary residents. And one of the things, is it not, that I think God wants to impress upon us in this season is that this is not our home. You know, we've seen the death of a lot of things this season, right? Some of us have seen the literal physical death of loved ones. We've seen the death of jobs. We've seen the death of money, of IRAs, of plans, of trips, ceremonies, rites of passage. And, you know, some of that we can, we can comfort ourselves and say, well, you know, some of that will come back, and maybe so, but we know some of it may not. And the Bible never promises us our best life now. The only thing God promises us is a living hope. So God sends things like pandemics, right, to rock our world. You see, the more we've settled into this place, the more that we've had spiritual amnesia and forgotten that this is not our home, the more that's happened, the more it hurts, doesn't it? When God begins to pry our grip off of the things of this life. And so seasons like this, for Oaks, are a grace from him. Because God wants to give us something more. Not just a hope, not just wishful thinking, not just dreams, not just statistical models or playing the odds. God actually wants to give us a living hope. And Peter tells us how this happens. Let's look at the second point, God and his plan. Now, while the world is fading... Peter wants to make it clear that God is making alive. While the world of the first century is collapsing around them, while the world of the 21st century is collapsing around us, God is not collapsing. He is not working death. In fact, he is working life. Look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You know, when someone becomes a Christian... When someone moves from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of light, we have to understand that is a collective work of the Godhead. Salvation is a Trinitarian project. Salvation is a group project. You know, when I was in grad school, we had to do a number of group projects. And here's the thing about group projects, right? They sound great at the beginning. Everybody's going to share and they're gonna, we're going to work hard, and we're going to divide the labor equally. But we all know, if you've been there, group projects often are just an absolute nightmare, right? There's always someone in the group who doesn't care. There's always someone in the group who's, who doesn't show up, or who might be absent, or lazy, or there's an, there's an, an equitable amount of load sharing. They're riding the cotels t- of the group. And Peter's reminding us here, that's not the way salvation has worked for you and me. You see, the Trinity, one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Peter mentions them all here because he knows that they have been engaged in a unified effort to bring us to Jesus Christ. So when he says here, the foreknowledge of God the Father, that's interesting language, Because Peter used that exact same language in his sermon in Acts 2 to remind people that Jesus had been delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What Peter's point is that this same person, God the Father, who divinely orchestrated the death of his Son for a sacrifice for your sins and my sins, this same God the Father is spearheading, is divinely orchestrating your salvation. Verse 3 tells us a little more about how that happens. And it says, and cause them to be born again. Now, the Greek word, anagana'o it means literally a reversal, okay? A resurrection. We think about the patient being dead, the, the, the medical team on the scene. There is no life, there is no breath, there is no Heartbeat, And here the idea is that God literally breathes life. He breathes spiritual life into the, into the dead center, which is you and me. He regenerates us. He awakens us in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, here's what I find just absolutely amazing and stunning and encourage you just to, to, to sift on this and think about this today. The same life that was breathed into Christ, which was the Holy Spirit, which caused Christ to be resurrected, do you realize, church, that's the very same life that God has breathed into you in order that you might believe? The Holy Spirit, God himself, has awakened our hearts has regenerated us, has opened our minds, so that then, and we're looking on in the text, we can be sprinkled by the blood of Christ, cleansed, forgiven, sins, atoned for, new hearts, a group project through and through. The salvation of your soul in Jesus Christ is so important to God that he is deployed all three of the persons of his being to bring you safely into his kingdom, but now here 's what 's amazing that 's not all he did that 's not the end of the salvation process it 's just sort of getting you into the kingdom and having your sins forgiven, and then sort of giving you an opportunity to fend for yourself you know. I got you over the, I got you past the starting line, Christian. Now it's up to you to finish the race. It's up to you to to complete this work that I've begun. But what Peter makes it clear here is that God doesn't just, when he saves us, it's not just the beginning. When God saves us, it comes with a commitment to keep us to the end. Okay, look at the text here for a second. Verse 4, he caused us to be born again, listen, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. Now, that term, being guarded or kept, it's a military term. The idea is that God awakens your soul, he's brought you into the kingdom. And now he has deployed a band of military officers, except it's the Holy Spirit, that God is standing guard over your spiritual life. God this season is standing guard over your soul. God has a commitment to you, to me, in Christ, to bring us to complete the work he's begun, to give us an inheritance that's undefiled, that's unfading, that's unspoiled. Now, this quarantine season, I don't know about you, but it's been my opportunity to read obscure stuff on the internet. And I was reading the story about the discovery of Tutankhamun's King Tut's tomb. And you are probably super familiar with the idea. This was like one of the most amazing treasures ever discovered, untold riches they found in one of these pyramids. But what was truly remarkable about this discovery was not just the wealth that was found, it was, in, it was the condition in which they found it. See, for 4,000 years, this tomb had remained undisturbed. Think about all of the things that had happened over those four or 5,000 years before the discovery. World wars, floods, plagues, environmental catastrophe, grave robbers treasure hunters. I'm surprised Nicolas Cage didn't show up looking for it, okay, by this point in time. It was was an amazing thing of treasure, but what was even more amazing is that it was perfectly unsoiled. It was untouched. Christian, you and I both need to know that God's preservation of our souls is an infinitely greater task and feat. When we think about sin and brokenness and viruses, and the fading world, and Satan, and the flesh, and all the things that are waging war on our souls this season, God has made a commitment to you in Jesus Christ to give you an inheritance, undefiled, unfading, and unspoiled. And of course, that inheritance involves eternal life. Of course, that heaven involves eternal reward. It involves heaven. But primarily, This reward is salvation. In other words, it is Jesus himself. What's your hope in this season? What has this season revealed about where you've really put your faith and trust? We need to be reminded of something, 4 Oaks. All of us have placed our hope in something. Is it a dead hope? Is it a living hope? And living hope only comes through faith. And that's Peter's last point he mentions here for us. Faith and its fruit. Let's look back at verse 6. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus now there has been a lot of debate and is currently right now around this covid-19 thing in terms of is all this necessary what was all of this necessary is the cure worse than the disease have we overestimated people are protesting they want to get back to work. They want to get back to life. And, you know, only time and history will shed ultimate light on that question, right? But one thing is not in dispute for us as Christians. The one thing that is not in dispute is that trials like the one we are currently walking through, Peter tells us, are necessary, not helpful, not merely important. Not, not useful, but in fact, they are necessary. Look back at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And here's, here's, the, here's the key, verse 7, so that. In other words, trials are necessary so that, in verse t- 7, tells us what that is that trials reveal, Peter tells us, the genuineness of our faith. And I want us to camp out on that for just a minute because that is, that's really a significant thing here. Peter's not merely saying, I want your faith to be strengthened, although that certainly is a part of this. But let's remember what Hebrews says. Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is what unites our hearts to God and his promises that he has for us in Jesus. And what Peter is saying is that the outcome of our faith or our trust in God is sa- the salvation of our soul. So a lot at, is at stake when it comes to biblical faith. Which means, this is also, please, also important for people, particularly for people who live in a Christianized world or bubble what this means is that faith must be real. Faith must be genuine. And verses 8 and 9 tell us something very, very important about the nature of faith. It says, though you do not now see him, it says you believe in him. And that word believe, it's a, it's a participle. It denotes the idea of ongoing action. It literally means though you do not see him, you are believing in him. See, faith is a habitual or ongoing activity. Faith is not static. Faith is active. It is fluid. Faith is something that commits itself in an ongoing way to rest and rely upon the promises of Christ. So when you ask someone if they are a Christian, and they say yes, and you say, well, how do you know? You often might hear an answer something like this, well, you know, Pastor Paul, I walked an aisle, or I prayed a prayer, or I tossed a pine cone in the fire, or I pinned my sin on the cross. And all those may involve a real demonstration of faith, but not necessarily. You see, faith is ongoing. Faith is not a one-time decision. And it's in seasons like this that God wants to prune our hearts. He wants to strip everything else away and say, what are you, Christian, relying on right now? Where is your hope? What are you trusting in? And it's a hard process, right? God has to whittle a bunch of junk away from our hearts and minds. He uses the analogy of the of, of the fire and the gold. I mean, it's not always fun to be in the fire, right? We know that what comes out on the other end is going to be pure, it's going to be wholesome, it's going to be preserved, and that's what God's doing in us, and that's very difficult. But at the same time, it is incredibly hopeful because it demonstrates for us God's commitment to us to do his work. It reveals to us God's commitment to carry us to The end. And it's through faith, Peter reminds us, verse 8, that we rejoice with a joy and a glory that is inexpressible. You know, I I was listening to a sermon yesterday by by Pastor John Piper as he was talking about this text. And And he referenced that biblical line of Paul's where Paul talks about that we are sorrowful but always rejoicing. And a lot of times, Pastor John said, we, we, we tend to think about it in one or the other. Either we're having a good day or a bad day. Either we're joyful or we're sorrowful. When in reality, the biblical idea here is that we are always both all of the time. See, we, are, we can't just stick our fingers in our ears or put blinders on our eyes to see the brokenness that's all around us, to see the destitution of the world, to see the things that are fading away. Even in those moments of greatest hope, we know that there is another force at work in this life. Well, at the same time, even in our depths of despair, we are never so despairing as not to know that God is creating for us preparing for us a, a, a weight of glory that will far outweigh anything else. And so we are always at the same time sorrowful, always rejoicing. That's what Peter means when he says rejoice with a joy and a glory that is inexpressible even in the middle of your serious trial of where you see everything around you fading away. You know, people can tell where your hope rests, can't they? Whether it's alive, whether it's enduring, or whether it's built upon something else entirely. Four Oaks, what an amazing, amazing opportunity we have this season to be a witness for the hope that is in us. That's why Peter is writing. But in order to Be a witness of the hope that is in you, you have to have what? That hope. Do you have that this morning? Two kinds of hope: Christ and everything else. And everything else is really no hope at all. It's just odds on a statistical model, it's wishful thinking, it's a a daydream, it's a desire. Peter wants to give us this season, Four Oaks, a living hope, a joy that is inexpressible because it's rooted not in what's happening around us, but is what's happening in us through him. Let's pray.